Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. This week, we're looking at the past and future of the world we live in through taste. Our guests this week are going to talk about the way that we've irrevocably shaped the planet through our consumption of fossil fuels, of exotic foods, of cups of tea, and how the drive for empire was spurred on by lust for a temperamental, caffeinated plant, and how that plant, tea, ultimately fueled empire. That rhetoric of tea is the civilizing beverage, you drink it, you feel calm. I saw that from the very beginning and it, it lasts to this day. So it's one of the longest, um, we could say sales pitches. How through hundreds of years of expansion and resource extraction, we've carved our mark not only in the abstract lines between countries and continents, but on the planet itself. How oceans are rising and acidifying, killing off certain species and allowing others to proliferate. Things like octopus, which are, are being referred to as the weeds of the sea because they are also experiencing a population explosion and no one quite knows why, if it's in spite of global warming or if it's, if it's directly because of it. Our world is not the same one it was 30 years ago. No iPhones, no Twitter, no podcasts. And it won't be the same 30 years from now, largely because of us. Our ingenuity, yes, but also our supreme stupidity, short-sightedness, and greed. So this episode, we are exploring how our relationship with the changing world has been in flux, will always be in flux, really, and we're looking at it through food and drink, past and future. Later on in the episode, we'll be talking with a novelist and a chef, Alexandra Kleeman and John Monroe who recently imagined what a dinner party might look like 30 years into the future, hovering on the border between science fiction and reality. And then they threw that dinner party with a couple dozen pounds of seafood that might still be here when the ocean turns to lemon water. But you can't talk about the future without living through the past, so we'll get that one out of the way. Our first guest is Erica Rappaport, a historian at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her latest book is called A Thirst for Empire, How Tea Shaped the Modern World. As Eric argues in the book, so much might be different if the British hadn't first gotten a taste of all the tea in China. The shape of modern India, for example, the rate of alcoholism in England, perhaps even the outcome of World War II. 
her book draws a map of how the British Empire overlapped with the international tea market and shows why this now ubiquitous drink is one of the keys to understanding globalization today. Thanks for talking to us, Erica. Thanks so much. So I guess my first question is, um, so commodity histories are really all the rage right now. There have been so many books about commodities that have changed the world according to their titles and the arguments inside, like bananas, cotton, (laughs) cod, potato, uranium, it goes on. So how did you hit upon tea as uh, the commodity that really shaped the modern world? Yeah, that's a good point. There are, it seems like every day you turn around, there's another book on lemons or oranges or something. And I think, I mean, there are a couple of reasons for that. And I actually really like these books because they get us to see different forces that shape globalization. But of course, oddly, there were a lot of books like that, sugar, tobacco, coffee, and there wasn't any scholarly books on tea. There were a lot of popular books. Now a couple of books have come out, but that was about 2002, 2003 when I was thinking about it. But I especially wanted a commodity that was uh, associated with the British Empire, and I kind of knew that was the case. I was looking for how consumers especially respond and experience globalization, and in that time period, you know, imperialism. The British came to so dominate the tea trade that it seemed like a perfect example to see how did that happen, and then how did they lose it? I was just as interested in how they um, lost control of the tea trade in the late 20th century. So, I mean, I guess the next question is, tea has such a really long history that predates the British, I guess, co-opting of it. So how did you choose where to start your history since it goes back like 2,000 odd years? Right. Um, That was difficult because the original material that I found really starts in the late 19th century, and I was originally going to start with them. But then I thought I realized that the Chinese were really responsible for creating mass market. So I wanted to give the Chinese credit, and I got very interested in looking at how, kind of giving them credit for creating the you know the Western taste for tea, but then also looking at how the British um, essentially stole that market. That really got in, you know very interesting to me that rivalry between China and Britain. So by being able to start in the early 19th century, I could see that. The whole world's drinking Chinese tea, and by the end of the 19th century, they're not. So what did those early struggles look like? How did the British really steal the market from both the Chinese and other European colonizers? Oh, yeah, it's interesting. All the international trading companies got involved in tea to a certain degree. But the British East India Company had the backing of the British government, you know, much stronger um, resources, I guess you would say. They're really like essentially you can imagine pirates, you know, like fighting it out, um, barely legal kind of trade. But the East India Company is responsible for bringing a great deal of tea to Britain, but smugglers did as well. We don't have clear statistics about how much tea was truly smuggled, but it seems clear that perhaps more tea was smuggled into Britain or into the United States, which was then, of course, North American colonies, than legal tea imported from the East India Company. So the smuggling, the smuggling business was what was really able to undercut the cost of the tea because it was not taxed and so much cheaper. Um, the smugglers had an amazing distribution network. They could get tea from ports in England, like in Kent, around the nation in a week, it seems clear, in the 18th century. So I was kind of fascinated with how like sophisticated the smuggling business was, you know, and they would end up in very elite well-regarded shops, these teas. You can imagine everybody sort of winking at each other. Oh, yeah, this is, (laughs) they pretend it was legal tea. (laughs) 
Oh, right. From like black market to high market. Yes, exactly. (laughs) What's fascinating to me is how the British East India Company eventually started acting sort of like a government in a way and was itself like such a huge presence in India. Can you talk a little bit about how India came to be associated with tea because it didn't start there? Yeah, exactly. So um, initially, the East India Company, of course, is importing all Chinese tea. And up until the early 19th century, China is the only source of tea. Japan is also producing tea, but they're not trading. But, you know, in the 19th century, the Chinese and British start getting into diplomatic struggles. They're fighting over borders. They're, you know, um, the Chinese don't want, and they're incredibly good at keeping knowledge about tea from Europeans. You know, they make it illegal to sell seeds outside of China, illegal to trade plants. So the British become kind of um, anxious that as they get more and more dependent on tea and they're importing more and more, they're essentially feeling like they can't control the markets. Classic, we know a lot about this, that there's a trade deficit. The Chinese wouldn't buy anything the English wanted to sell in return for the tea. So the English have to use silver and then ultimately use opium and create the problems that led to the opium war. So the trade by the late 1820s, early 1830s, it's clear that it's kind of creating tremendous tensions and you see more and more of the directors of the East India Company, but also private traders saying we need to find an alternative source of supply. It's only in the 1830s that Britain realized, oh, there is tea growing in the hills of India. Um, But Assam wasn't part of their empire at that point. So within a couple months after discovering the tea growing there, the British decided they had to actually colonize the area. So there's a very tight connection between the colonization of the Northeast and with Assam in particular and the tea trade. So at that point, many people feel, oh, then the British are drinking Indian tea. They grow plantations, et cetera. But they actually don't. It takes them almost a century to make good tea. The tea that they were able to manufacture was, it sounds like, truly terrible. (laughs) You know, all the retailers who described it, even in the 1870s, are saying it tastes like weeds, doesn't taste like tea. Um, Some people described it having a weird texture when you added milk to it. So that's what really intrigued me is how did this actual tea get better and how did the planters and others come to see Indian tea as tea? So how did they figure it out then? I mean, they didn't have the 2,000 years that the Chinese did to perfect the art of making tea. Exactly. Yeah, it was very difficult. And initially they actually um, kind of, they didn't understand those 2,000 years that go into developing a craft, it was really remarkable. They said, oh, we'll just get some Chinese workers to help us. And they would take Chinese criminals and get them to work on the plantations. That didn't work at all. In fact, there were huge fights between the Chinese that they imported into Assam and the local Assamese, cases of murder. It's just incredible. Like the British would pay these workers in opium and then complain that they weren't working well. And I'm like, (laughs) I don't know how they, you know. Um, So a lot of missteps, you know, and then they did try to get Chinese tea makers to come to the plantations and teach them how to do it, but they only had a couple people. So it was very difficult. And then um, at the same time, occasionally, like every 10 years or so, the local people in the regions they were growing tea would attack the plantations, and that led to a small war, you know, so it's like it really wasn't secure at all until about the 1880s. So you needed to basically have the military to help secure the space. Yeah, the story you tell about the violence in the tea growing regions in India and how the British East India Company colonized the region in order to grow tea highlights this really interesting contradiction with the commodity itself, which is 
that's supposed to be a civilizing force. Right. And, you know, it, it, oh, it's so it's so interesting because like colonialism, right, you're it's obviously about resource extraction, but so much of the lie is about civilizing the savages. Yeah, I mean, that is so striking because that makes tea a little bit different than other commodities. Because, for example, cotton, you don't say it civilizes you to, you know, put on a T-shirt. Obviously, they weren't wearing T-shirts at the time. But that rhetoric of tea is the civilizing beverage. You drink it. You feel calm, etc. I saw that from the very beginning, and it it lasts to this day. So it's one of the longest... um, we could say sales pitches, you know, but meaning surrounding the commodity lasted for hundreds of years. But one thing I discovered is that the Chinese had that ideal too. And so in the like 16th, 17th century, I really think that some of these ideas about tea being civilizing comes from China. And the British adopted those ideas along with the tea. So the Chinese would say, oh, it's civilizing to grow tea. It's civilizing to drink it. And I think that essence of that idea was that it's not alcohol and it doesn't get you drunk. It seems clear. They'd often say it's an antidote to alcohol or it purifies the body. Uh, so it's civilizing because you're not drunk all the time. <laughs> um, but the, of course, the Chinese also were violent to their workers and, you know, so that it was not civil. Literally, it was also violent in China as well. But when imperialism was criticized in the late 19th century, the tea producers would say, no, but we're producing this great civilizing beverage, you know, so we're not doing anything that's disrupting the local society. We're bringing this wonderful, as they saw it, almost Western commodity, even though it wasn't Western. They'd even argue it was civilizing to work in a plantation because, you know, they would teach you how to work for a wage. That was one of their ideas. So it became a kind of... um, Promotion not only of tea, but of the whole idea of empire. It's like, you know, a symbol of imperialism brings good things to people, makes them well-behaved. Yeah. That really um, ties in so nicely with ways that tea was advertised, which is what's so fascinating about tea is that it was really the subject of, like, the biggest global ad campaign on the part of the British. So where did that start? And I guess what was the most convincing ad technique? Yeah, I mean, you've really captured it in the sense that we think of Coca-Cola, McDonald's, other, you know, branded goods as being the real global advertisers, but these guys were advertising everywhere. But the real firm global campaigns start in the 1870s and 1880s when these planters realize that nobody likes their tea. And I was so surprised in the 1870s and 1880s to see planters in meetings that they had. They formed organizations starting to just debate, well, where can we sell this good? You know, and then have fights, amazing fights between whether or not to sell Indian tea in India or in the United States. The planters were thinking, all we have to do is increase consumption by a little bit in these large places and we'll solve all our problems. So they did imagine and figure out how to advertise both in the United States and in India. And so they figured to sell the more wealthier, higher quality tea in the U.S. and then the poor quality tea dust and, you know, cheap teas in India. So it's sort of that was really fascinating to see them thinking about and talking about race, not using necessarily that term, but saying, well, the Americans are really Anglo-Saxon, so they should like tea naturally. And then they would say things like, But the Indians are Asian and the Chinese like tea, so they must like it too. (laughs) So unsophisticated kind of ideas about populations. Um, They said it's a little political blip, that Boston Tea Party. We just have to (laughs) remind the Americans that they're British, you know, they have British taste. 
Right. It's so ironic, too, because they tried so hard in America and sent, like, the better tea to the United States. And still, like, India yeah. is a much, much bigger tea country. One of the more successful campaigns you talk about, too, is the World War II tea campaigns yeah. that the British waged, which, I mean, obviously, like, soldiering the height of masculinity. Right. Uh, how did that work? Yeah, it was. I was surprised because I thought, oh, World War II, there was rationing. I didn't think there would be any efforts to sell tea. You know, that seemed you're supposed to be trying to limit your consumption. But they literally thought that rationing would destroy the markets altogether and they'd never come back. So they really pushed the idea that tea's for um, soldiers, you know, and got the army and the militaries and navies, et cetera, Air Force, to source tea and give it to the soldiers. So they used mass markets, but they're forced markets. So the British managed to start working in industrial settings, making sure that munitions workers got their tea and had tea breaks, and then also driving these silly tea cars all around the war, um, everywhere, the you know, the battle fronts and home fronts. And so it's become a real norm. Like we have food trucks now. Well, essentially, the food truck was invented by these tea. They call them tea cars, but they're mobile canteens. And actually, throughout the 19th century, armies have been really important in shaping tastes, and they're very important markets. So armies are critical to globalization, and World War II is probably a really important turning point. We think it is, it is a break between you know the Depression and the expansion of the consumer society after the war. But I think it's really important as a kind of laying the foundation for that. Because after the war, then those tea cars went all over the empire. You know, they just retooled them to get tea to Africans in the um, rural districts, that sort of thing. So what happened after the colonies gained independence, like after the collapse of empire? How did that change? Yeah, I mean, that's why I really wanted the story of rise and fall. But I was surprised because the Indian governments and the um, Ceylon's government did debate whether or not to get rid of tea altogether. You know, they all use the language that this is a European colonial institution. Tea isn't very good for our poorer people, um, you know, exploits workers. That rhetoric was definitely there. But in the end, they do decide to keep the industry as a form of developing the local economy. At the same time, they don't seem to have the same kind of investment in the world. And consumption goes down so there's a striking correlation. You know, it's not a direct causation that ending empire led to the decline of tea in Britain. But the British did think that losing the empire was losing their taste for tea. And the lifestyle that had accompanied tea kind of disappeared, too. Erica Rappaport's book, A Thirst for Empire, will really make you want to sample the entire world of tea, so to speak. And there's so much we didn't even get to cover. Because we had to move on to the future, where in the corner of a restaurant in Brooklyn one September evening, a novelist and a chef were dreaming up a meal set 30 years after tomorrow. I snuck up to New York City that day to chat with the two of them and see exactly what this future might look like. And please excuse the clatter in the background. I was eavesdropping on them in the restaurant the night that they were prepping for this dinner. Anyway, Alexander Kleeman is a fiction writer, the author of the prize-winning novel You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine and a short story collection. 
Her work pulls from science fiction, dystopia, fairy tales, the weird. And she recently started thinking about what that would look like translated into the world of food. I've always been a big science fiction reader, dystopia fan, uh, as much as you can be a fan of dystopias. And I was thinking a lot about those issues at the exact same time that I was getting into um, heavily stalking Jen's Instagram. (laughs) Jen Monroe is a chef based in Brooklyn who runs a food project she calls Bad Taste. Pop-up dinners that explore new ways of thinking about food and consumption as bizarre fantasy and unfamiliar territory. I really loved her food. It didn't seem like you could take anything for granted about them. Like It made uh, me feel sort of like I was new to this planet. And that, I think, is the emotional motor that runs um, a science fiction novel or a far-future dystopia. So they teamed up with an event group called The Bellwether to create what they called The Next Menu. Alex sent Jen pictures of translucent jellyfish at the Staten Island Asian market, and Jen got to thinking about what to do with them. Here's Jen. So we were talking a lot about um, climate change as it's going to affect the oceans, and we wanted to do a dinner that's going to be um, kind of the interpretation of what seafood could look like at some point in the next 30 years. 30 years is the sort of arbitrary timestamp on it because it's within our lifetime. It's not sci-fi. It's not like really far outside of the realm of reality as it stands right now. And the changes that are going to take place in that time frame are maybe seemingly subtle um, in terms of the way that they affect food availability. But in the grand scheme of things, they're actually pretty serious and are going to have some pretty large scale ramifications. To figure out what to serve in that in-between space between the familiar and total change, they started to think about what might still be around 30 years from now. Ingredients that are adapting well to climate change, or are even possible models for how we might eat sustainably in the future. So we were talking a lot about things like algae, which are, um, their lifespans are so short, they, they go through such rapid cycles of reproduction that they're actually able to evolve very, very quickly. And so they are showing signs of quite literally being able to evolve to rising ocean temperatures and acidification and things like that, which is is really exciting because they seem like they're going to maybe be just fine. Um, Things like octopus, which are are being referred to as the weeds of the sea because they are also experiencing a population explosion and no one quite knows why, if it's in spite of global warming or if if it's directly because of it. So things like that, things that we wanted to kind of experiment with, maybe slightly more alien textures. There's a lot of seaweed in this menu because seaweed is also doing pretty well, and there are actually quite a few kinds of invasive seaweed that that seem to be thriving in the oceans right now. A lot of the reports that I had read said that major changes to the agricultural system would be more 50 years out, um, and major changes to what we were able to get from ocean ecosystems or marine environments would be closer, like 20 to 30 years. And so there's this, um, there was this question of what point to aim at, and I thought that the ocean was sort of a more vulnerable environment to highlight and show the sort of new foods and newly edible substances that we would be using in the future. So when guests walked into the restaurant one Friday this fall, they were met by enormous quantities of salt, covering the tables in dunes and in salt sculptures, encrusted mussel shells and bottle caps and shards of plastic and even an iPhone all covered in salt. And then a voice would start reading, something about strange creatures with infinite fins, or a fruit factory, or a person keeping a fishbowl from disappearing underwater. 
short pieces that Alex had written to figure out what life and everyday eating and our relationship with food might be like 30 years from now. We walked along the shoreline, collecting traces of things that still lived out there in the greenish, still waters. Thick-shelled halves of clams and mussels, washed-up jellyfish that looked like glitches in the landscape, oblong blurs in the sand. Life was sparse, but it was still there. But in the future, don't worry. According to this menu, at least, we will still eat main courses. And for the main course of the next menu, guests got to eat an entire bowl of an imagined ecosystem, one based on a hopeful model for shrimp farming, which might actually produce enough shrimp to feed our enormous hunger for them, but sustainably. It is growing shellfish, shrimp, and seaweed together, and so the shrimp go about their business and create shrimp effluent, which is one of the kind of major polluting problems of shrimp farming altogether, is what to do with all this um, shrimp runoff, to put it politely. Um, But the benefit of adding shellfish to the scenario is that they're filter feeders, so they can filter out the waste and um, survive on it, and in the process create another crop, effectively. Um, And then seaweed acts as a a way to kind of re-oxygenate and circulate the water and kind of keep everything nicely balanced in the pool. So um, the dish is this shrimp farm ecosystem in a bowl. Um, So it's a a very concentrated dashi stock with um, wakame seaweed, a little pile of of steamed mussels in the middle. Um, And then guests are encouraged to drop little half spheres of fermented shrimp based jelly um, to drop them into the soup and then stir it around so that the jelly dissolves. And that's kind of acting as the like inoculation of the ecosystem with your shrimp. But that's only one model, one way of imagining the future. Alex and Jen wanted to talk about something a little bit more ambiguous, more uncertain. We um, were sitting across from one another, and I was talking about how frustrating it is also to sort of have to choose one of um, the sociocultural possibilities out of many different ways in which society might adapt to a shortage or to scarcity. Um, And I outlined sort of five basic ways that I thought we might cope with not having our favorite food so available. And she, she sort of paused me and said, what was that phrase that you said, five futures? And we went back and uh, thought about each one of them in order. And so the dessert is five different little bites that each represent a different avenue. The first one, which is door number one, um, is a world in which, quote, fine dining, unquote, is able to elevate foods that were formerly undesirable. So the course is a tiny spoonful of um, jellyfish buttermilk sorbet. Um, Jellyfish have been used in Eastern cooking for ages, but Western culture kind of has yet to catch up, and jellyfish are completely taking over the ocean, and they're a really excellent source of protein and and very readily available. So we're sort of waiting for for the rest of the world to catch up and figure out how to eat these things because it it just makes sense. The second bite is a tiny apple pie uh, as kind of a nod to farm-to-table cooking, but not out of a a trendy place, but coming out of a more necessary place, like if global food chains collapse to an extent where we have no choice but to only eat what we're capable of growing or trading for ourselves. Three is the instance that is maybe the most sci-fi element of the whole meal, is if we have completely abandoned food as food and instead have turned to getting all of our sustenance from gels and pills and supplements. And so it's a, a his and hers square of jello effectively we thought a lot about how um, marketing would go in a world where all food was was manufactured in a laboratory effectively 
so it's um it's a two-tone jello half of it is for men and half of it is for women we were kind of thinking about how ridiculous gender marketing is the half for women is pink it's strawberry flavored and it's infused with biotin which is for nice hair skin and nails because everyone knows that women are supposed to be beautiful and then the um kind of greenish blue half which is for men is bacon flavored uh and it has omega-3s in it for better brain function because everyone knows that men are supposed to be smart and then the fourth is kind of the most hunger gamesy option it's a world in which um formerly desirable and frequently consumed foods are still available but they're so rare and in such short supply that they have become very very expensive um so we think about things like you know a piece of fruit being sold for auction at hundreds of dollars Um, and for this course in particular, I was thinking about uh, colony collapse disorder and all the changes that loss of bee populations will, will have on the way our food chains work. So the, the food course is um, a very small square of fig, a little dab of very delicious yogurt, um, which is made locally, and then a, um, a small piece of raw honeycomb with a little bit of edible gold leaf on top. So the idea is that it's kind of eating a bee agriculture ecosystem in one bite because uh, wasps and figs have a very intimately intertwined uh, reproductive cycle. They, they kind of need each other and um, in order for a fig to grow it, it ultimately has to have a wasp die inside of it to be fertilized. So eating fig and honey together kind of turns into a sort of like a chicken and the egg situation, you know, eating the parent and its offspring at the same time. Um, and then garnishing it with a little bit of gold leaf is sort of a nod to fetishism and to exploitation, I guess, and, and covering it with, with literal currency as a way of marking it as such. And then the fifth and final course is a, um, I guess it's not even really a course because it's not edible. It's an empty mussel shell that has salt crystals grown all over it, so it sort of looks like a piece of jewelry almost, but it, it also kind of acts as a reminder of what happens when these shells kind of represent ghosts of animals and food sources that are no longer available you know what happens when the ocean quite literally becomes empty and all we have left are fossils from species gone by and what if we we can't adapt at all and what if what if all of our adaptations aren't enough right before we got there i had been talking about this short story that was really um important to me or it was a big influence on me when i was a child my mother is a japanese literature professor and um she had mostly books in Japanese, but some in translation. And when I was much too young, like eight years old, I read uh, this book of Japanese uh, sci-fi short stories that she had, and uh, they were very dark. <laughs> um, one of the ones that stuck with me the most was about Sakyo Komatsu. He had a story called Choose Your Own Future. It was a story where a man enters a sort of nondescript office building. He waits in a waiting room. He goes in and a woman behind a desk explains to him that uh, he has three doors that he can look behind and each door is going to show him a picture of a different future and he'll be able to choose which one he'd like to have come true. And um, it may not happen within even his lifetime, but he can rest secure that he knows the true outcome. That sort of question has driven a lot of my work since then. Because of the sort of entertaining structure of um, a lot of post-apocalyptic literature, you know, you've got dangers, you've got a journey, you've got threats and heroes and, and the type of resolution or safety that's usually reached. Um, I thought, what if we could sort of still or slow down 
that sort of narrative momentum and focus on the world that you would occupy, focus on um, what it's like to have your food sources reconfigured or rewired, what it's like not to be able to order up the things that feel like home to you and um, have to find your home in the place that feels unhomelike. I want eating this meal to feel like an encounter, like um, you're meeting something new. And I think that Jen's food brings that automatically. That's the experience I had when I first saw still photos of it. You know, um, I was actively trying to figure out like, what is this? But I want them first to encounter their food as another. And then um, I want them to think about when they leave, what it would be like to walk into this sort of context every day and have it be the new normal. Is there a place for them in this world that is posited by this food? Is there a way in which this experience, even though it's a great experience, is a warning? But there's something exciting about the idea, I think, of spending time on another in another world, as long as you know that time is limited. So slow down a little bit. Pull up a chair at the unheimlich dinner table. Choose a door. Maybe even choose a future. Grab some soylent or jello or some jellyfish sorbet. Here's the piece that Alex wrote to close out the menu. I looked down into a large glass bowl. In the water was a small fish, small enough to lie in the palm of my hand. Its body was silver and shone in the dim light. It was shaped like a long, thin leaf. The fish was alive. It swam in slow circles or hung in place, its small fins paddling rapidly. But where its gills should have been, its body was smooth. And then, on the underside, two small sacs the size of a fingernail, pale pink and marked by a faintly branching red. I watched it swim to the surface and gulp at the air. The delicate tissue on the underbelly swelled and deflated. Tiny lungs. The bowl was not deep, but it was wide. Filled with water, it became incredibly heavy. It had to be carried close to the body. Tilt it just an inch and water spilled over. The little fish slid towards the rim of the bowl. I wrapped one arm protectively around the round glass and the other underneath, and I carried it with me toward the light at the far end of a long, long hallway. To my left and right, long-haired women sat on long benches, following me with their eyes as I walked past. When I faltered, when the bowl seemed to slip around in my grasp, they sighed or laughed or covered their faces with their long, thick hair. In the hallway, the water level was rising. I had noticed it at first as a wetness of the tile, like the floor had just been mopped. Now it lapped over my toes as I walked barefoot toward the end. The long-haired women worried for me as I made my way through the water. They gestured, suggesting to me that I might hold the bowl differently, straighter, that I might put the bowl on my head to keep it a maximum distance away from the water that was rising so slowly, but rising nevertheless. I pulled the little fish and its measure of water closer to my body. I tried to hide it from their view. When I reached the end of the hallway, there was nobody there, only five numbered doors and a small desk with a pad of paper. I was having trouble standing, 
The water had risen past my knees and was tough, salty. It swayed me, which caused the little lung fish to tilt in its bowl. Someone had written on the paper, Choose your future. Pick a door. I looked at the doors. They were all identical in shape and size. They had doorknobs that looked fairly shiny, fairly new. The only difference I could see was the signs, each of which had a different number that was painted in a different arbitrary color. I stood there holding the bowl as the fish swam circles inside. How could I choose, knowing so little about the situation? What type of world was behind each one of these doors, and how would I live into the world I had chosen? All I could be sure of was that the world I chose would not be like my own. It would not naturally have a place in it for me. The water level had risen to my hips, brushing against the bottom of the fishbowl, though the fish seemed unperturbed, its delicate lungs pulsed in time with an unknown rhythm. The future was coming whether I chose it or not, whether I acted or waited. As I stood there, as the water rose, it was already coming, water up to my stomach, water up to my teeth. It was coming at a speed that was too gradual to perceive, but too fast to adjust to. In fact, it was nearly here. I lifted the bowl and held it up above my head. Seen against the brightness of the ceiling light, its body was perfect, fragile, precious. A quick shard of life darting in small space, a thing I knew, or hoped I knew, could survive the flood. There are photos on our website of the entire dinner. There's a link in the show notes. Big thanks to Jen Monroe and Alexandra Kleeman for talking to me while they were furiously trying to prep dinner for 45 people. And to Jordan Kisner, Danny Lencioni, and Drew Broussard at the Bellwether for all their help. Danny is the one who read the short story you just heard. Jordan, coincidentally, is a contributor to the magazine. She wrote a beautiful essay on a massive aspen grove in Utah, which, just like the oceans, is, spoiler alert, threatened by climate change. Check it out. Thanks also to Stephen Akers, who let us use his gorgeous photographs for the meal. Our theme music was composed by Nathan Prilliman, and this episode we also used music from Mind's Eye and Broke for free. That's it for Smarty Pants. Next episode, we are celebrating the centennial of the Russian Revolution. Yeah, that's right, October 2017, by talking about the House of Government, which sounds like a mythical, magical place, but is actually still standing on the banks of the river in Moscow. And we'll be talking about the resistance. Not the hashtag, but the very real anti-fascists who fought Mussolini's rise in Italy. And if you want to join our resistance against ignorance and book bashing, since it is Banned Books Week, after all, and we are total nerds, be sure to write in to podcast at theamericanscholar.org for some flashy red vinyl stickers. They go very well with bike helmets and hoverboards, or whatever you use to get to work these days. All we ask is that you leave us a nice review on iTunes. Pretty, pretty please. Till next time.
Take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.